Hello, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Today, we are very excited to be taking part in Pride Week at Sacramento State. And this episode will be focusing on LGBTQ equity. We are more than happy to do a different episode today as we have three panelists. And we are very excited to talk about LGBTQ equity, history, and some current issues that we feel that should be addressed on this podcast. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Cara Jones, who is a professor in the Women and Gender Studies Department. When we're learning history, we need to be learning the histories of like ourselves, right, of, of all of us. Um, and this should absolutely include queer people. Dr. Tristan Josephson, a professor in the Women and Gender Studies Department. Um, and I think I'm in company with my colleagues on this that I don't think about LGBTQ history in terms of individuals, right? I do think about it in terms of social movements. And Dr. Maria Vargas, a professor in the Ethnic Studies Department focusing in Chicanx studies. But for me, my LGBTQ politics are very much grounded in the act of helping, right, um, and walking alongside our most vulnerable members. This is a podcast brought to you by Sacramento State students and produced in collaboration with KSSU Radio. So, I would like to thank all of you for taking time out of your busy schedules to meet with us today. And I would like to pose our first question to Dr. Vargas. So, Dr. Vargas. What do you think is the biggest danger to LGBTQ equity in modern day life? All right, thank you. Help get us started. Uh, so the biggest, you say, danger to LGBTQ um, equity? Uh, I would definitely say um, that, you know, just wanted to quickly just um, give just a little background. I mean, I identify as a um, Chicanx, Latinx, lesbian woman, um, right? Daughter of immigrant, um, Mexican immigrant uh, parents, right? Kind of second generation in terms of uh, being born and raised in California in the Southwest. Um, so for me, right, my coming out and my experience in the LGBTQ community has really... Um, has has varied right in terms of uh, my initial kind of coming out years and you know my later 20s and now as a professor um and certainly um, what I begin to or what I've always seen as a danger is um just division um division in terms of you know just these different types of conflicts that are built within the community, LGBTQ community. One, because of the racial difference, right? Racial, ethnic, um, in terms of uh, people of color, um, as I said, right? Coming out uh, myself, right? I, I um, just had a different kind of unbelonging in terms of uh, the, the kind of white dominant um, uh, gay movement, right, um, that I was trying to belong in. Um, but definitely, I think we just need more solidarity. I think that we cannot afford any splinters or, as I said, any type of division within our community. We need, you know, in terms of more racial solidarity also, especially, right, the Women and Gender Studies Department recently had Andrea Ritchie, which I was just so amazed and happy to, to kind of have at Sac State. So also to me, I mean, we're living in BLM, right, Black Lives Matter, kind of the social movement. So racial solidarity is, is key as well as putting our trans, right, brothers and sisters and also non-gender conforming folks, right, on the, on the forefront also of our communities and our, um, uh, of course, not speaking for them or visibilizing or, or giving them visibility because who are we, but definitely, right, um, again, that solidarity kind of fortifying that space for them to then, I mean, they're already doing the work and they speak for themselves very well in terms of our trans and uh, especially, right, uh, the issues of intersectionality and the 
triple or quadruple oppressions of trans women of color, right? And, and that's really what Andrea Ritchie kind of centers in her work in terms of trans black women of color. So as a lesbian, Latinx, Chicanx, right? Um, and having experienced exclusion and marginalization because of my own, right, kind of um, uh, uh, woman of or woman of color background, um, I, I think that's our biggest danger. Thank you so much, Dr. Vargas. Um, Dr. Jones, I'd like to pose the question to you next. Hi, thanks, Ethan. Um, yeah, and I just want to echo basically everything Maria said was fantastic. Um, so, and I really appreciate, Maria, that you started by um, kind of positioning yourself. And I think I'll, I'll maybe follow that lead um, just so folks know who I am and sort of where I'm coming from. Um, so I uh, I identify as a, a queer woman. Um, I come from a very uh, rural working class background. Um, my, my family's very... Um, evangelical Christian. So um, kind of my own coming out uh, has been interesting, I guess I'll put it. Um, it's, it's been, it's been really fraught. Um, it's, it's, there's been a lot of um, challenges, I think, with my family of origin, um, just because of the, the religious aspects and, and sort of cultural differences between my family and sort of my own understanding of myself um, as a sort of queer kid. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until my late twenties that I, that I came out. Um, and so I don't know if this is like the, I, I mean, I don't know if this is maybe the biggest um, barrier to equity, but one of the things I was thinking of, especially listening to Maria speaking as well, is this something I noticed um, particularly in, since I've been in California, which has only been about, three or four years is this idea that, you know, there, I don't know that we're all, that there's tolerance and everybody's open-minded and, and there's sort of this idea that, you know, we celebrate, um, sexual and gender diversity. Um, and I think there's a, a, an element to which there's some of that happening, but I think when we really think, mm -hmm in terms of equity and we really think kind of on large scale, there's so many, when we have this idea of just being open-minded and accepting, we're actually not really seeing all the ways in which queerness and transness is, it still can be very challenging and, and difficult in a lot of places. Um, and I, and so that's just one of the things I was thinking of. Again, this is grounded in my, my own experience as well, which is one very particular experience. Um, but you know, when I when I came out, I was also in South Louisiana, um, which is a little a uh, little more hostile, I would say, than than California. Um, so, you know, while there's been like some progress, there's some, you know, I do appreciate being in California, where there's some sense of like legal rights and that sort of thing. There's, you know, uh, marriage equality has been around for I honestly can't remember how long now. Um, but I think when I'm thinking about that there's sort of the mainstream kind of gay rights um, agendas that are overlooking so much of what people actually need. Um, and so, you know, marriage equality is great. Um, you know, people should be able to, you know, partner with who they want to and, and raise children and have families and all of that. Um, but that's also kind of these like, I don't know, connections to like, state ties and, and sort of turning to the state to provide rights. Um, it, just, it just misses so much of, of what people need. Um, and when that's at the forefront of kind of our, oh, now, you know, we've got more equality because people can get married and kind of fit into this sort of almost heterosexual norm, right? So that we're normalizing queerness or gayness, um, yeah, I think just kind of, I just keep repeating the same thing. So sorry about that. But it's just like, there's a lot that we're not thinking about. And I think Maria hit a lot of those things. We're not thinking about the particular situations of like the most marginalized people. Um, we're not thinking about, you know, um, poor uh, incarcerated folks, um, trans women of color in particular, and the, and the different issues um, that the different communities face. So I think 
again, I'm not sure I would say it's the biggest barrier to equity, but I think it's something to really think about going beyond sort of celebrations of diversity or celebrations of open-mindedness or celebrations of, um, you know, milestones in LGBTQ history um, and thinking about what are the needs of, of the most marginalized and, and what are the what are the stories that are still out there and, and what are folks still struggling with and still needing? Dr. Josephson, I'd like to pose the same question to you. Sure, thanks. Um, I mean, I think my colleagues um, both said it very well. I think like Dr. Vargas and Dr. Jones, I see um, when I think about LGBT equity, that, seem, that is inseparable from racial equity, economic equity, right? Like those are, those are fundamentally tied together. Um, and I think, you know, I guess I can also reflect on my own um, identity formation and positionality. Um, so I um, identify as a queer trans person and I'm, um, my family immigrated to the US when I was a um, young child and I study in part immigration um, law and policy and its impact on trans migrants. Um, and part of why I was inspired to do that is because of my own family's history and my realization that as a trans immigrant, my whiteness and my class privilege have protected me in ways that most other trans immigrants aren't protected. And um, so those issues are always connected in, in my mind, right? Um, and I think like um, Dr. Jones was saying, the, the vision that I have for the LGBT movement or movements in the US is one that centers and prioritizes the needs of most vulnerable members, right? Um, in terms of, you know, really basic quality of life things like access to healthcare that's affirming and affordable access to housing and jobs, access to immigration status, um, living lives that are free from forms of state violence like policing, criminalization, immigration enforcement, um, and recognizing how, you know, homophobia and transphobia as structures of oppression and longer histories are inseparable from the ways that capitalism and white supremacy works in the US, right? So one example that is just so clear to me is that the trans, you know, and, and this is happening with a lot of trans organizing in the US right now, not the trans organizing that we maybe hear about on the mainstream news, but it's very obvious that trans movement should be deeply connected and working with the immigrant justice movement because of really basic issues around documentation, right? Same issue, IDs, right? Access to um, identity documents and status that enables people to live their lives in the way that they want, right? That seems to be such a really obvious concrete example. And there's very, there are many groups that are doing that work, right? Um, I just think their work isn't being amplified or recognized in, in the ways that, um, as Dr. Jones said, the sort of um, big ticket issues of like, you know, access to state recognized marriage or inclusion in the military or those kinds of, um, or non-discrimination laws or hate crime legislation, which are also really complicated issues um, that arguably perpetuate more forms of state violence against the most vulnerable, vulnerable communities, vulnerable yeah, folks within LGBTQ communities. Those are always the issues that we think about or that are talked about as being LGBTQ issues. And I'm, you know, like my colleagues interested in sort of reframing what, how do we even think about LGBTQ equity in relation to these other social, um, racial and economic justice struggles that are happening um, that are really important. Because LG, LGBTQ folks are, we're everywhere, right? We're all part of these, these um, um, other communities and, for many, um, for many folks, their gender identity or their um, uh, sexual identity is not the, the one, the, you, you can't isolate from other forms of their identity and is also maybe not the most pressing um, issue in their life right now, right? So, um, and some of that is also, I think, as my colleagues have said, if we think about the longer history of LGBTQ organizing, the most visible and the most well-funded movements have been led by, you know, white middle-class gays and lesbians, right? Which is why we have this framing of like what constitutes an LGBTQ issue. Thank you so much for that. So my next question for all of you, and I'll let Dr. Jones answer first. Um, what if Stonewall never happened? Would the momentum for the LGBTQ equality movement still be there or would it have slowed down? I mean, honestly, I, you know, I have no idea what would, what our life, what the world would be like if Stonewall never happened. Um, you know, uh, so I, I'm not sure, um, you know, if Stonewall didn't happen, 
perhaps something else would have happened. Um, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I know I'm not even sure I feel particularly qualified to speak on it, um, to be honest with you. Um, I'm thinking about this idea of, you know, the momentum for LGBTQ equality. Um, it really, there's, the momentum's coming from so many different places, right? Um, there's, you know, as, as my colleagues have mentioned, um, you know, there's the momentum that's coming from the most marginalized people, the most impacted folks, right? That's a particular kind of momentum that it has a hard time reaching mainstream discourse um, and media discourse. And then often when it is there, the goals or the, the um, kind of the needs of folks are, are misrepresented or misunderstood or even demonized, right? Um, so there's that momentum. There's the momentum of, of you know, the well-funded movements, the men momentum of like the, um, uh, sorry, what is it? My, my mind's blanking, but the HRC, like those sorts of things. So there's a momentum coming from a lot of different places. Um, and, you know, it's coming from all sorts of different places. Like it's coming from, you know, particular incidents that happen that people see um, or that get mainstream traction, or but it's coming from like the actual needs of, of people. Um, you know, I think Tristan or, uh, or Dr. Josephson mentioned um, healthcare, like accessing, not only being able to access very basic healthcare. So my, my research is in disability studies. Um, and, you know, I think a lot about health and healthcare and what care itself is very broadly from a sort of disability justice perspective. And so, you know, we have all these, these issues of accessing healthcare in the first place. Can you even get basic level of care? And then once you get there, right, how many ways does homophobia, transphobia, cis sexism impact how people have to present, show up, how people, you know, how clinicians understand their requests? Um, you know, there's equity trainings and, and awareness and things like that. But but do we actually like how is the humanity of, of LGBTQ folks actually taken into account in healthcare? encounters and how are we even thinking about care very broadly? So, I mean, I'm saying a lot here cause I'm thinking about like, you know, momentum. Um, I mean, I think momentum is coming from the needs of people that aren't being met um, and that aren't being met because of centuries of, you know, racial violence, gender violence, sexual violence, um, class based violence, right? All of these things. Um, so I think that there's, there's momentum, but it, at least for me, it's, it's very hard to sort of pin down to one location. Um, and I think Stonewall has been particularly impactful and I'm glad that it has this sort of, um, it's the, the folks keep reminding us that, that Stonewall happened and, and sort of aren't letting sort of white middle-class mainstream movements sort of define LGBTQ rights and LGBTQ um, movements. Um, but I'm also aware of how much it feels like we're constantly having to be reminded of Stonewall, of, you know, what was happening first, why Stonewall started, who started it, that it's, to me, it seems like it's a, it's a reminder that, hey, this is actually the history. This is actually the history, not just um, sort of what kind of dominant LGBT movements have, have sort of put out there. Dr. Josephson, I'd like to pose that question to you next. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. I, I like how um, Dr. Jones is sort of thinking about it in terms of momentum and a, a few more things I could say about that. Um, I think often kind of picking up on some of her latter points, the way that Stonewall's remembered or misremembered in particular ways um, I think also erases the history that came before it, right? So, um, you know, before Stone, the Stonewall Riot in 1969 in New York, there were other, you know, moments of um, kind of uh, queer and trans militant resistant to police brutality, which is what Stonewall was about, right? That happened in LA um, in, in Cooper's, at Cooper's Donuts, which I think was like in the 50s. I'm misremembering the date on that, but I know in San Francisco with the Compton's Cafeteria Riot in 1966, that was led um, primarily by um, trans 
the language of trans wasn't was just starting to come into existence there, but basically folks we might call now trans women of color primarily. Um, there's you know longer histories of um, queer and trans youth organizing in San Francisco. There's the homophile movement in the 1950s, right? There's a long history of um, different forms and different strategies of um, uh, grassroots activism in the, in the U.S. around issues of um, you know non-hetero sexuality and um, uh, gender nonconformity. Um, so I think that's you know that's one way we can think about this question is that if Stonewall hadn't happened, this momentum might have been built up in other ways through other movements, right? I also think when we think, and this comes back to some of the themes I think we were talking about before, when we think about Stonewall, um, often bec that becomes significant because that's where our sort of like um, help to solidify this gay or lesbian or trans identity, right? As a, as a form of identity and as a form of identity politics. But if you look at the folks who were organizing in the aftermath of Stonewall, those were folks who were organizing with um, like the Black Panther Party or, um, you know, uh, the Young Lords or um, other like Ch Chicanx or Latinx um, revolutionary movements at that time. Um, these are folks who were later involved also in like kind of what Dr. Jones was saying um, around health, like the um, healthcare movements in the 1970s, um, which were led by women's healthcare movements that had a lot of um, lesbians active in that, right? That then led to kind of a lot of the AIDS activism that happened in the next decade. So I think there's ways that we can sort of see all of these movements happening and they got solidified in this one, you know, three days of, of rioting that, that got, then became a kind of rallying point for a lot of folks in, in New York and then also the rest of the US, but these were, this was just such a rich time of social movements um, uh, that, you know, I think some of these issues would have, would have developed. Um, and I do think there is a kind of warning ar around Stonewall in the way that it does help consolidate, like I said, I think I'm repeating myself, but I'll just say it one more time, the kind of idea that there's a gay or lesbian identity that's, that is separate from a racial identity or from a gender identity, right? And that's the kind of risk, right, that we see, um, you know, that Dr. Jones was sort of mentioning um, earlier. Um, I think Dr. Vargas too, right, the, the ways that, who are the, who's imagined to be, the, where, where are the sites of LGBTQ activism imagined to be in the US and how that's particular versions of um, sexual and gender identity. So yeah, kind of went roundabout there, but I'll stop. Thank you so much. Dr. Vargas, um, I'd like to pose that question to you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I'm again, uh, just honored and it's really kind of nice to be in the, the company of uh, Dr. Josephson and Dr. Jones. Um, and especially, right, talk about our queerness. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly echo everything that both of them said. And for me, um, you know, Kara uh, said something that stood out which was um, not only the issues of momentum, right, but also that, that that momentum emerges from when needs are not met, right? Um, and also Dr. Josephson spoke to, right, these kind of, uh, if Stonewall, right, this hypothetical question, if, if Stonewall would not have happened, right, still those needs were not being met, particularly, right, what Dr. Josephson said in the area of, um, police brutality, right, just complete, just, you know, um, I mean, they were fed up with the dehumanization, right, with the constant harassment that they couldn't even, right, just kind of have a drink or be in community in a peaceful way. And um, they revolted, right, that that is itself its own rebellion at its purest form, regardless if it be, right, the sexuality or the, the gender identity or the racial or, you know, um, disabilities, right, in, in terms of what really propels that resistance forward. Um, so to me, that's, that's the good, you know, that I get from Stonewall and from also learning um, this as as Dr. Josephson said, right, um, something very particular about these acts of resistance and how they have been kind of narrated, you know, into this kind of social movement, 
social movement that will be remembered as Stonewall, that will be remembered as gay, right, lesbian liberation. But that again, right, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, they were all running kind of parallel um, to the feminist movement, to the civil rights movement, to the Chicanx movement, right? And, and all of these are like kind of parallel and simultaneous with each other that it's really hard to say which one, you know, started first or which one is more visible or powerful than, especially, right, at for women of color, that these movements were running so parallel. Um, and as, you know, feminist movements were my majority, right, kind of, um, in terms of the narrative, they seem to be engineered, you know, by more so white, right, American women. And then you have the Chicano movement that was more so of, of a masculine, right, very uh, racial, you know, uh, perspective without any gender analysis. So, again, to me, what um, frustrates me about the Stonewall at times is how it is remembered. Right. Because of that whitewashing narrative, because it, you know, um, uh, folks, mainstream media or mainstream academics, dominant narrative attempts to almost dismember it from the feminists, from the civil rights movement, from the Chicano, Chicano, Chicano studies or Chicano movement. Um, and, and that to me is where it begins to be almost ahistorical and not not organic, because it takes, again, that kind of form um, that excludes people like me, right, or that I was not able to belong in the 90s when I was coming out as a Latina lesbian. Um, so, I, and I mean, it's 2020, 2021, and we're barely kind of uttering the names, or my students are barely learning about Marsha P. Johnson, Silvia Rivera, right, um, not only uh uh, um, people of color, but also the trans, right? The trans folks that were erased and invisibilized from the movement because of these particular, right, wa whitewashing narratives and agendas, right? That they knew that, you know, um, uh, centering or spotlighting people like Marsha P. Johnson and Silvia Rivera would not garner that attention, right, um, that it, particularly, right, Stonewall has been able to kind of forge through white uh, gay men and what we know as pride, right, um, that has become actually, if anything, dangerous for some of our trans and other, you know, immigrant or folks of color, um, so and, and and I just want to end too with another thing kind of echoing from the last question in terms of, you know, when we talk about acts of resistance in our LGBT, and I loved how Dr. Josephson said, right? Well, how do we begin to even frame what LGBTQ right issues are if we're kind of coming from this very fractured, fraught history um, of all right, all kind of these parallel social movements that did not really reconcile, right? We're kind of still trying to, trying to resolve it through that solidarity, um, which was, right, uh, to me, my LGBTQ, LGBTQ community really forms in um, the aspect of liberation and revolutionist politics that I've learned, right, throughout my life um, and in my you know, again, as a as a queer woman of color, I do I most of my research has to do with Guatemala and um, as Tristan was talking about issues of immigration reform, indigenous women, right? Um, you know, experiencing sexual violence, uh, but then migrating right to the U.S. in terms of asylum. So there's always queer there's there's queerness there there, but it's not always as apparent or in terms of the identity polit politics formation that we see in the U.S. But for me, my LGBT LGBTQ politics are very much grounded in the act of helping, right, um, and walking alongside our most vulnerable members, right? And to me, that again, that's the good of Stonewall, that the most vulnerable members were those trans women, those women of uh, folks of color, right? Also gay men, right? I mean, <laughs> everyone in terms of the oppression they were focusing for gender identity, but again, uh, gender and sexual orientation, but it just becomes more fraught, right? Um, 
wants an agenda or people, you know, establish a privilege in which they're able to position their authority or their power, their assertive power, or their authority. And then what happens is they, they perpetuate, right, kind of internalized racism, homophobia, or, or, or transphobia in our own communities. And that's where I really think back to Dr. Josephson, we need to reframe what it is to be an LGBTQ community and what it is, right, to, to really put our most vulnerable members at the front, whatever their identities may look like. To me, that's the future of, of our community. Thank you so much. All right, I would like to move on to our next question. So, and this question's a little tricky because it's asking for your own opinion. And granted, this is kind of a difficult question because there have been so many historical figures. Now, while they may not have been taught in school, I would very much like to know your personal opinion. Um, in your personal opinion, or per se, who has been the most influential to the advance or to the advancement of LGBTQ equity? And I will let jo or Dr. Josephson answer first. Oh, okay, I was hoping to hear from my colleagues first. <laughs> um, I I did have a hard time with this question because I because I think I do as as I hope as being a parent in some of the ways I've answered the previous questions, um, and I think I'm in company with my colleagues on this, that I, I don't think about LGBTQ history in terms of individuals, right? I do think about it in terms of social movements. And I think there are names of people that we know, right? Or that we come to know as, as more histories are told. Um, and we see those folks as kind of leaders, right? But I think if you go back and look in those moments, um, those historical moments, um, they're working in collaboration and community with many other people, right? So um, I don't know. I mean, I think, I guess I'm gonna turn the question a little bit and say one of the things that feels most exciting to me in terms of the advancement of LGBTQ rights in the contemporary moment is um, the, the connections that I see, as I mentioned already, um, so I'm kind of refusing to answer your question, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say I think the, the the potential now in the future is about those intersections between immigration, justice, and LGBTQ rights, and then also prison abolition, and um, and looking at the, the situation of incarcerated queer and trans folks in the, in the prisons in the U.S., which include immigration jails, um, and understand, like using that as a vantage point to understand how state violence works against marginalized communities. And, and that to me seems to be the potential um, for moving forward. And there is a history to that, right? There is, you know, going back into the, the 70s for sure, there's histories of um, lesbian anti-prison organizers. There's um, consistently trans folks who have been disproportionately incarcerated and organizing that they've done around that. So that's, yeah, that's my answer to, to your question there. And I very much wanted to highlight the fact that your answer was like a really good one, considering that you were saying that there wasn't just one individual in history, it isn't made up of just an individual, it's made up of many people and many different events. But I would like to pose that question to Dr. Vargas now. All right, thank you. Um, yes, I was also, uh, yeah, th this question, um, because right, I'll immediately, as as Tristan said, the question kind of points you towards identifying individuals, and it's just very overwhelming, right? And you definitely also don't want to leave anyone out, or you know, in terms of um, their impression, right, and impact um, on the movement. But I guess for my own selfish reasons, um, I will pick an individual because, um, I mean, she just forever marked me. Um, in terms of, you know, me coming out and, uh, and even also, you know, um, not only coming out as a lesbian, but also wanting to be an academic or professor or do what she did, uh, which is Gloria Ansaldúa, you know, um, Chicanx, um, lesbian, uh, you know, and, and to me, um, she also gives me kind of the, the pride of using even that word lesbian. Right. Um, because even now, right, especially with my students and just there's no, there, I, I notice that there's, you know, they don't necessarily identify with that term the way I did in the 90s. You know? 
uh, makes me feel a little old, but you know, I mean, there's more fluidity now with the queerness, you know, and their experiences as there was to mine, you know, back in the nineties. Um, my, my coming out resembled more Gloria and Saldua, right? This Mexican woman from the Valley, you know, um, rural, very much segregated in terms of other folks of color or white folks, you know, um, until she left kind of the Valley to grad school. So to me, you know, it, it reminds me not to take for granted the word lesbian, because for Gloria and Saldua, right, um, she fought so hard to even say it, to write it, and through, right, her shadow beast, as she calls it, um, I saw myself in print. You know, not and, and and as we talk about these intersections, right? I think that Borderlands La Frontera was the first time that I saw myself not only in print as a Chicana, you know, but also as everything, as everything that I was, you know, and trying to kind of make sense of, you know, am I am I a lesbian? Am I Mexican? Am I, you know, um, because these things, of course, you know, they they're not supposed to exist at all, especially together. And I think for me, Gloria and Saldua really took out that shame of being called a lesbiana, of being, you know, a Mexicana in the Valley um, and, you know, forever marked the person and professor I became, you know, through, through her work. So to me, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do my work in honor of her as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Vargas. Dr. Jones, to pose that question to you. Oh gosh, I don't know that I can do any justice after Dr. Vargas just spoke. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for everything you said, um, Maria. That was wonderful. So um, I was kind of making a list and thinking about this. So I have uh, looking at my list. There's actually two individual names that I have, and then three groups. Um, so. I'm going to go ahead and say, and this is this is a very um, more personal reflection. So, you know, most influential to overall LGBTQ rights, I have no idea. Um, I think it just depends on how you're framing that. In terms of me, I'm actually going to say somewhat facetiously the, the Westboro Baptist Church and the Family Life Network, because they have put this. Uh, I don't know if I can use curse words. They have put things out there. Um, I grew up, like I said, I grew up in a very white evangelical community. And I listened to uh, my parents had on radio stations all day, every day that talked about the depravity of gay. And they didn't use the language of queer and trans. It was mostly gay um, people and and lesbians. Although, again, I'm not really sure they use that, that word. Um, I grew up, I didn't have anyone that I could even think of in my life that was LGBTQ. Um, you know, I guess my mom had a music teacher in high school who was gay, and I guess I knew of his existence and he lived with his partner and stuff. But all this to say that it just wasn't even in my entire community's like lexicon. Um, but what was there was very damaging narratives about how sinful and horrible gay people were. Um, and it was all the time. And I, I think of my family as generally very loving and they've listened to this narrative my entire existence. So I'm going to say that these groups like the Westboro Baptist Church who are just outrageous with their positions and beliefs, but also it was like the Family Life Network was this particular religious programming in rural um, Pennsylvania. They put such extreme messages out there that it that it's almost hard to to not see that and do something about it um so i think there's a some influentialness in there because it's like you know i don't know how you can listen to some of the things they say or some of the things some of these ministers and leaders have said without feeling sick to your stomach um i'm also going to say in a kind of more positive light um the two names i came up with are um and again, these are very personal to me, but um, I definitely think um, Audre Lorde has been someone who has just been so powerful in articulating the intersections of kind of her particular lived experience as a, a Black immigrant, 
lesbian woman, um, you know, who's a daughter of immigrants, um, who has just sort of, I don't even know that I have language for it, um, but she's really been able to articulate the power of being who she is, despite the fact that all of society, like, does not want her to exist as she is. Um, and then also the other person that I thought of, and again, this is also very personal to me, is um, Dorothy Allison, um, who's a, a white lesbian um, writer um, who really thinks about social class a lot in connection with her queerness and or her queer lesbian identity um, and kind of seeing both Audre Lorde's and Dorothy Allison's writing has really given me a sense of like understanding that I too can can sort of exist. I can write, I can, you know, write my experience um, and, and see that. Um, and then I also thought about the Combahee River Collective, who is a group of, of Black lesbians um, who, who wrote about, um, they're most widely known for their Black feminist statement, um, but they're really kind of doing the work in the intersections of racial justice, gender justice, sexual justice, and, and class consciousness. Um, and then finally, um, the other group that I think of a lot um, is actually Sins Invalid. It's a, a disability justice group. They really founded disability justice um, in, in roughly 2005. They're uh, mostly, they're queer, mostly people of color led group in um, the Bay Area. They're a performance group and they're really about celebrating the sexuality, the sensuality, the embodiedness of folks who have not been seen as sexy or sexual or even human. Um, and, and they're really, to me, one of the most important groups currently who's, who's putting forth a vision centered in disability justice and um, queer people of color um, led justice-based movements that's really celebrating human bodies in all of their forms and all of their sizes and all of their their kind of ways of being so I think I think that's what I've got <laughs> sorry thanks thank you so much Dr. Jones all right we're going to go on ahead and move to our last question and we'll do a small open discussion but um Dr. Vargas um, I'm gonna let you answer first for this question but first let me pose you this question um, recently in the news, there have been a lot of conservative states who have had governors pass bills that are banning transgender athletes from competing. Why is there so much opposition like to athletes who identify as transgender? Ooh, that's a loaded question. Um, but yeah, I, fortunately, I got to run the classroom, but I'm going to try to at least make a dent in it. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, I actually, this is like also, I mean, as academics, right, we all have like our specific research interests, but um, I mean, I, I've, I seriously am like a sports geek, you know, I mean, I grew up with track and soccer and the only main way I communicate with my father is, you know, when national Mexican soccer games are going on and I'm on my brother's, you know, uh, fantasy football league and everything. So uh, this is uh, also just a, a very kind of special passion of mine um, in terms of just me, right? Without necessarily academic interest, but it has it has become more right of an issue that I want to write about, talk about with a critical, you know, also scholarly lens, because I think that we need to, as queer scholars, put this more in our agenda. And, and thank you, Ethan, for, for bringing it up and talking about it. Um, you know, I want to simply, you know, Castor Semenya, you know, that's where I want to start with in terms of, to me, right, that, that, um, uh, it was, it was, it was her story that really brought my ignorance also to show as you know, and, and I, I say it in the most respectful way as, way as well when I speak to my students, but um, again, sexual orientation and gender identity are, are two, they're, they're interlinked, but they're different, especially in terms of our consciousness. So for me, my gender identity, because I am privileged cisgender, right, my gender identity has been 
more gradual. And it has been really with the help and love of my trans students and um, friends, right, that have um, schooled me, that have educated me on my ignorance, right? Um, And to me, you know, that really, to me, encapsulates the kind of conflict that right now is arising in the area of sports, right, that we also see a lot of in terms of racial justice, right? I mean, it's just professional sports are not ready, right, to have these very critical dialogues, you know, about uh, these intimacies of our lives, you know, whether it be like domestic violence, sexual harassment, as we're, you know, right now, I don't know if you're, you know, Deshaun Watson, what's, you know, this um, football player. I mean, the, the, the professional sports world, I don't think is caught up yet with any of that. So, Quickly, what I would like to say is, to me, the reason I think it's so hard, um, you know, but then we have, you know, Caitlyn Jenner and her transition as well and her what her visibility has brought to the area of sports. But, you know, it's different when it's read through a trans white woman, you know, former athlete than, you know, uh, an African woman, right, uh, or as Castro Semenya. But really quickly, I think it is just the ignorance and the not knowing and the denial of understanding gender identity and 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 I don't know. I think there's just something so threatening about you know uh, about understanding right um, gender and sex outside its biological determinism. And people want to like, you know, hammer that in and just make that as natural as possible. And I think that that's the battle that's being fraught right now in sports. Um, and and we'll see how it plays out. Um, but to me, it's it's just really hard to watch. Very disappointing. And I want to help more um, engage in these conversations. Thank you so much, Dr. Vargas. And I know I have to run to class, um, but before I give the question over to Dr. Jones, I want to say thank you so much for being on this podcast and hopefully you have a wonderful class. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I wanted to say so much more, but I hope that I made some sense. But thank you so much. Have a good one, Dr. Vargas. I would love to be back with uh, Tristan and Cara whenever you are ready for us again. Thank you. All right. Dr. Jones, I'd like to pose the question to you next. Yeah, thanks. Um, so unlike Maria, I, I do not know sports at all. Um, I have three brothers and a father who that's all they do is sports things and listen to sports. And I, I, I just, it's like completely out of my league. Um, having said that, I will say that I think what Dr. Vargas is saying is so absolutely important. I'm so glad that she mentioned um, Castor Semenya because I, I talk about this in my gender and health class. Um, I think one of the reasons we're seeing so much pushback about sports, I think bathrooms are connected to this, but I think sports in particular are this absolute need to believe in the gender binary, right? We not only need to believe in it as a society, we need to believe that it's biological, that it's rooted in our bodies, that it's objective and that it's natural. What's one way to do this? We can divide people into categories for athletics, right? And we can say that this is purely based on your biology. This is purely based on your bodies. And it's purely based in like weight classes or speed classes or however they do different sportsy things, um, height, weight, body, you know, muscle mass, all of these things that are rooted in people's bodies and they're completely different based on gender, right? And so we have this binary belief in gender that men are X, women are Y, there's nothing in between right? Men have more muscle mass. Women have more fat. Uh, men are taller. Women are shorter. All these things that we have, right? And of course, when we have this binary view, right, we don't notice that the vast majority of humans, like, we all exist within this spectrum, right? Um, it means nothing to say that men are taller than women on average when you know, walking down the street, that this, you know, any random man might be smaller than any random woman, right? So all this, so we have this core belief that that the gender binary is rooted in our bodies. It's medical, it's objective, it's biological, it's natural. We have to make this natural because if we don't, then we have to question the whole lot of it. If that makes any sense. 
right? Um, and if we can just, you know, silence the trans folks who are trying to use bathrooms that we don't want them to use or trying to, ju- you know, there's always this, you know, danger of like, oh, well, what if you get a trans woman who's faster or stronger than cis women? It's unfair. This belief that trans women aren't actually women, that they're men. Um, therefore, they're going to have some kind of biological advantage over cis women, right? Um, means that if we just kind of can silence those people enough so that we don't see them, we can keep believing that men and women are two completely different categories, that there's only two groups of people, and that it's completely natural. Um, and that we don't have to question literally anything in this, you know, in terms of gender, which means like the whole system that we've set up. I feel like I could talk about this for like three years. And I, so I feel like I'm saying like a lot. So maybe I'll, I'll, you know, be quiet for a little bit and pass it over to, to Tristan as well. Dr. Jones, we very much appreciate what you have to say. And hopefully we'll do another episode where you can talk about this issue. Um, but Dr. Josephson, I'd like to pose this question to you next. Sure, thanks. Um, so I, I agree with um, what Dr. Vargas and, and Dr. Jones are saying in terms of the sort of larger fundamental issue here is a resistance to challenging like the naturalization of the sex gender binary. But I also wanna say, um, and, and I know um, Dr. Vargas talked about professional sports a lot and, and Dr. Jones a little bit, but I see this happening in a really scary way around um, kind of school-aged um, sports um, and not professional sports. And I actually want to say that I don't think there actually is widespread opposition to trans athletes. I think that this is a manufactured crisis. It's a moral panic that's being engineered by right-wing, law, right-wing lawmakers, also conservative feminists, awful bedfellows. Um, uh, and I think it's also related to the movement to deny gender affirming healthcare to trans kids. Um, I think this is all couched in this um, like pan- moral panic language about quote unquote protecting women's sports, um, which is like a whole nother conversation we can have. It's an ironic thing to say, given that um, there are other issues affecting young, young women and girls sports, namely uh, sexual abuse and violence at the hand of their coaches, let alone the larger issue of like the non-funding of women's sports and, and girls sports, right? But I think when you look at all of these states that are passing these laws, um, which are many, many states, right? Um, it's pushed by right-wing think tanks and, organ- and organizations that are funding this. Most of the lawmakers in those states can't even name one trans athlete in their state. And sometimes there might only literally be one trans athlete, right? Like um, who who is on a, a sports team, right? So I think this is about creating a problem in order to advance sexist and transphobic policies that is related to the, ba- like as part of a backlash that's related to the increasing visibility about uh, around transness, right? Over the past couple decades. And, and um, I think this is very dangerous actually in, in conjunction with the healthcare bills because it's setting a foundation for solidifying what sex and gender looks like in the law to further um, create punitive policies, right, in, in the future. And so um, I find this very worris- worri- worrisome, but I also don't re- think it actually reflects what most people think about trans people or trans kids, right? I do think that it's a moral panic that's being fomented um, and creating this problem that, that doesn't exist if you went and talked to like, you know, families whose kids play on teams with other trans kids, right? So there's a lot we can say about it, but that's, I just wanted to make those points. Thank you so much. All right, well, thank you for answering all of the questions that I sent out to you and are structured. And what we'll do now is our open discussion and what, which is kind of unique for this episode is I don't really have a lot. I really kind of have one and I like if both of you could try to answer it. Um, I think that would be a really big thing, not just for me, but for our audience, because um, as a college student, and I'll speak on my experience, um, when I was in history class, I didn't learn about any major milestones of LGBT equity until my senior year of high school. And I know a lot of students right now who will share that same feeling that they didn't learn until about high school. So in an education standpoint, when it comes to history, should we be teaching more about LGBTQ equity and these famous historical figures? Like, should we be teaching more about that or should we continue to teach the same curriculum that we've been teaching? And whoever would like to go first, you can. 
I can go. Um, I mean, I'll just say that I did not learn anything about LGBTQ folks until probably graduate school. Um, maybe a little bit. I, I did have, I did two different undergraduate degrees, actually towards my second undergraduate degree. I forgot I did a minor in women's studies and we talked about queer people. Um, so I had to do my second undergrad degree before it was even anywhere in my horizon um, that this was something that could be included in educational curriculum. Um, and I still believe that the vast majority of the knowledge that I've gotten, which is very uh, touchy, I guess, here still, um, has been on my own, has not come through educational institutions. Um, so you know, I'm actually thrilled that you did learn a little bit about it in high school, um, that you that you actually had some conversation about. So I think that's great. Um, and I think that we absolutely should be talking about LGBTQ folks from the very beginning. And, and not just like we try to do nationally in terms of like, oh, look, we have Black History Month is, is February and Women's History Month is March. And now we're going to go back to talking about presidents and wars. Right. Um, or, you know, women made bread and all, all these things that we that at least I got through my my educational curriculum that we should be talking about people from the beginning. We should talk, be talking about social movements for sure, but also just about the humanity of people and really rethinking our entire curriculum so that we're not just sort of if you're talking about history in particular, advancing like this myth that's just founded on this sort of white upper class landowning men, right? Cis men, um, that we should be really thinking about people. Like what are the lives of people like um, and, and the different kinds of history and maybe how these policies of the, of the, the you know, um, ruling class men have impacted them. Um, but really thinking about when we're learning history, we need to be learning the histories of like ourselves, right? Of, of all of us. Um, and this should absolutely include Queer people, and it shouldn't just be like, well, if February is Black History Month, March is Women's History Month, April is Queer Month, or something, and then you know that sort of thing. That it's like this special extra thing that it should be woven into all of the lessons from the very beginning. Uh, Dr. Josephson, would you like to go next? Sure. Yeah. I. I mean, I agree with um, Dr. Jones, and I think um i and particularly i agree with the with her assertion that this shouldn't be sort of so the answer to your question is yes clearly from the get go we should be learning um about gender and sexuality in much different ways than it's taught um historically and traditionally in in uh, school curriculums um and i also agree that this isn't sort of an add and stir kind of thing where you have the week on like gay people or a week on stonewall um, or a month in Pride Month where, you know, you, you focus on these issues um, because queer history is, queer and trans history is American history, right? Even though I'm using like even historians, you know, uh, like the language of queer and trans is, you know, very, very recent, right? So, um, but when we think about the history of sexuality and gender identity or, or, or gender nonconformity, um, that's a long history. And I mean, one way to even, one way I talk about it with my students here at Sac State is we can go back and think about the, the earliest moments of colonization in what is now called the Americas, right? And that those, um, the, the founding of what came to be the United States, right, was founded on the imposition of a sex gender binary, right? That some of the earlier, earliest, um, you know, European um, uh, colonists came over and some of the, you know, formative violence that happened in that moment was the um, the punishment and, and murder of um, indigenous folks that they saw not adhering to sex gender norms that Europeans had naturalized, right? So like, there's no way to talk about the history of what is now the United States without talking about the creation of sex gender norms, right? And I think that's the advantage of having like what we could call a queer and trans, trans lens on history is to understand that it's not just about identifying these historical figures, but understanding how the social construction of gender and sexuality is not just about the social construction of queer people and trans people, but it's all of us, right? Regardless of our gender and sexual um, identities in the present, right? And so that to me is, is a way, like um, Dr. Jones was saying, of kind of re completely reimagining 
you know, how we think about these issues and how we think about gender and sexuality in relation to, for as I just said, indigeneity and, and the, you know, um, uh, histories of, of racism and white supremacy in the US. So um, yes, I think that needs to happen. I think it's a big process that will take a, a long time. Um, but there is, I think California in particular has made a little bit of progress on that in terms of recent legislation about um, incorporating more LGBTQ history and also disability history into secondary school um, curriculum. So there is some movement on that, at least in this state, but it's a long, it's gonna be a long process of reimagining how we even think about these questions of, of history, right? Yeah, of course. Well, I want to first thank you both for taking time out of your busy schedules to talk with us. We very much enjoyed hearing what you had to say and getting to have a good conversation with you about this. Um, and one last thing I would like to thank you both for is just your perspective. And something I didn't mention at the beginning of the podcast that I typically do is that this podcast is all about highlighting the fact that we all have different perspectives, whether they be shared, different but the main point is that we're allowed to express those perspectives and be respectful, but also try to find a bit of middle ground. And whereas today we did find a lot of middle ground in perspectives and we shared a lot of opinions, I do want to highlight the fact that we are able to have these conversations and we should start having them now. So I want to thank you both and I want to thank all of our listeners and we are very happy to have you listen to us. Thank you and have a great day.